Today from the Global Lane, the world-shaping agenda of billionaire George Soros. He said, the United States is the biggest obstacle for world peace. This is globalization. The COVID emergency ends. Lessons learned about health and government mandates. When we give broad sweeping authority and we haven't given it, they're just claiming it, then they have that authority to use it against you without any evidence that you are sick or a danger to anybody else. Making amends, billions of dollars in reparations for descendants of slaves in California. How do we invest? How do we return? And how do we repair so that all of us as Americans can try to find a place of, of racial healing? And will anything stop a massive wave of migrants from flooding over the U.S. southern border? And it's all right here on the Global Lane. Chaos in American cities, racial division, an unraveling economy, and a former president under threat of prison. How could all of this be happening to a global superpower, the world's leading democracy? Our next guest contends one billionaire and his influence is reshaping American society. Dr. Rachel Ehrenfeld is author of the new book, The Soros Agenda. She's also the founder and president of the American Center for Democracy and the Economic Warfare Institute. Rachel, a lot of people would say, come on, you're attributing too much of American societal change on one man. How could George Soros possibly be responsible for much of the leftist anti-democratic shift that we're seeing today? He doesn't have that much power, money, influence, but you contend he does. So let's begin with Donald Trump and Alvin Bragg, the New York DA. He's bringing the former president to trial. Soros says he's never met Bragg nor did he give money directly to his campaign. So tell us what you've discovered. Well, the key point or the key word is really directly. Soros has been funding directly, but a lot, indirectly, all kinds of uh, issues, all kinds of groups, all kinds of uh, institutions, organizations, candidates, for district attorneys, for any elected official in the United States and elsewhere. So indirectly is really important to remember. He has, Soros hasn't done everything alone. I mean, he has a lot of support. And he, he cultivated this support and exercising influence over the Democratic Party since Clinton was in office. Uh, initially started with a foreign policy, and he even had an office at the um, State Department at the time, during the Clinton administration. And he, of course, continued to um, uh, work later uh, through his Open Society Foundation, which is really um, ironic. It's ironically named. What is Soros's goal here? It, it seems like it goes far beyond just stopping Donald Trump then. Oh, absolutely. Uh, Donald Trump is just, uh, you know, uh, just an inconvenient, a big, uh, uh, a big hurdle to, uh, uh, to destroy. Uh, so he, he wants to, uh, if early on, he said that um, the United States is the biggest obstacle for world peace. Uh, he said back in 1998, he, he, he told uh, David Broder from the Washington Post that um, I live in one place but consider myself citizen of the world. Moreover, he said that he believes 
And why is he so good to be a citizen of the world? Because he believes that certain universal principles apply everywhere. If you don't have a border uh, and just some people live in the territory, and if they cannot manage on their own, then um, um, Open Society Foundation, the UN, uh, the World Economic Forum, whatever, uh, can come and intervene in what is happening there. Uh, that's the general idea. So this is globalization. How about Israel? It isn't just the United States. Tell us how George Soros's money is affecting Israel. Well, uh, see the demonstrations uh, against legal reform in Israel, and uh, Soros has been involved in promoting left uh, organizations uh, from, for decades, as well as Arab Palestinians who do not recognize the state of Israel that pays them social security and other benefits, uh, and Palestinian organizations, including uh, Palestinian uh, des terrorist-designated organizations. Many people would say your thesis is anti-Semitic. It borders on conspiracy theory because Soros is Jewish. And how do you respond to those allegations? Well, I have actually, there is a chapter in the book uh, called uh, Soros is No Dreyfus, uh, where I discuss the issue of uh, how Soros is using the religion he was born into but he never, he, he didn't grow up in a house that observed religion. He actually said that his mother was anti-Semitic. Uh, he does not, he's, he, he claims that he's agnostic and uh, he doesn't like Zionism. He thinks that uh, the Jews shouldn't have a Jewish state. Uh, everybody should be able to live there. They don't uh, need and they don't deserve a Jewish state. I've written back in 90, early on in 1996 uh, in the Wall Street Journal and in other papers uh, that unless he is challenged, Soros will be able to change the political landscape of the United States. He did. Uh, so uh, why, I mean, I criticize him. I was born and raised in Israel. I am Jewish and I'm an American citizen. And uh, I see nothing wrong with criticizing policies that are um, destroying this country and are attempting to destroy uh, the Jewish state of Israel. Okay, the book is The Soros Agenda. Rachel Ehrenfeld, founder and president of the American Center for Democracy and the Economic Warfare Institute. Thank you, Rachel, for being with us. We appreciate it. Thank you for having me. Lessons learned. Now that the U.S. government's COVID pandemic emergency is officially over, what are the takeaways about shutdowns and mask and vaccine mandates? Leslie Manukian is the president and founder of the Health Freedom Defense Fund. The group successfully challenged Centers for Disease Control mask mandates in federal court. Leslie, thanks for being with us. So a little over a year ago, the court struck down the CDC's mask mandate for travel. What was your position at that time, and why is it still significant now that the emergency is over? Well, there's something called the Public Health Services Act, and the Public Health Services Act grants certain authority to CDC um, in the event of an emergency. But the CDC doesn't have the power or authority to intervene in our individual lives. It's only allowed under what's called um, Section 42, Title 264. It's only allowed to investigate, inspect, in exterminate, fumigate. You know, you can see all these things. 
pests, articles, animals that are being brought into the country or transported over state lines, which might then infect human beings. Nowhere does this authority um, allow CDC to dictate how individual Americans lead their lives, let alone to dictate that tens of millions of Americans who travel every day for work or pleasure have to wear a mask when there's zero evidence that they're sick. And so we filed this lawsuit because we felt that there was a clear overstepping of C CDC's lawful authority, and the court agreed with us. Well, a lot of Americans felt that there was a lot of government overreach in this uh, pandemic. Uh, so what have we learned about masking? What does the scientific evidence say? The, you know, what's really disgraceful is that the CDC knew in May of 2020 that masks do not stop the transmission or spread of flu, of respiratory infections like flu. It knew that. It published its own study in May of 2020 looking at 14 randomized controlled trials, which are the gold standard in scientific um, study, a study, scientific analysis, and yet it proceeded with its mandates. It's insane. And then in the most recent months and the last couple of years, there's been a mountain of evidence, most recently the Cochrane Organization's review of over 70 randomized controlled trials finding that no masks do not work. But it's worse than that. It's not only that they fail to work, they actually cause harm. This is so important. It is incumbent upon anyone seeking to control you or dictate your behavior to prove that whatever they're trying to do, one, works, but two, won't have any deleterious impact on you. And masks, masks actually very quickly show rapid increases in blood levels of CO2, which reduces your oxygenation levels, and we know how dangerous that is, and that causes a cascade of harm across the human body. Well, what have we learned about vaccine mandates and the military? I know the Pentagon's argument has always been we must protect the troops and the sailors because they're together in confined spaces. We need them ready for combat, especially our deployed Navy fleets. What about that? Well, I don't think mandating, I don't think any ethical society or free society mandates any kind of a medical intervention. They authorize products that prove to be dangerous. We know this from Vioxx. We know this from thalidomide. We know this from so many things over the decades. And we also know this from the COVID shots. The COVID shots were never studied to determine whether or not they actually stopped transmission or infection. That's been admitted at the World Health Organization and elsewhere. And we knew as early as July 27th of, of uh, 2021, the CDC admitted this, that the shots do not stop transmission or infection. Therefore, there simply is no public health um, justification for these products or for mandates. They shouted down, they smeared and decried anyone like myself who, sp who spoke out, who tried to argue that we need to, we need more time, we need to look at the science. They called us conspiracy theorists and misinformation spreaders. They were horrific. They literally did everything they could to silence those of us who were trying to um, bring a little reason to the conversation. So I don't think we can argue that this was just an oversight. It was something a little bit more nefarious in my view. Well, I mean, whatever happened to free speech? You put the information out there, let people decide, then make their own choices. Well, in the event of another virus, uh, and we pray that doesn't happen, that we don't have one as deadly as COVID, but if there is another pandemic, are you saying the government should not act to contain the virus and protect the people, or how should it act? What should be done? Well, listen, let's be very clear. COVID was no 
nowhere as deadly as they originally purported. Nowhere as deadly for the vast majority of people. It was only a serious issue for the for the very elderly or people with serious comorbidities. Okay, so they exaggerated that from the very very beginning, and we knew that from the Princess Cruise Lines, where there was predominantly an elderly elderly population, and they had about a one percent fatality rate. I would say, you know, we need to look at what history has shown us public health issues for the most part are reserved or public health powers are reserved for the states so the states can decide determine whether or not there's something in their locality that needs to be addressed we have to err on the side of caution lest we have this kind of situation happen again okay leslie manukian president of the health freedom defense fund thank you leslie for being with us thank you so much for having me A reparations panel in the state of California is calling for billions of dollars to be paid to African-American descendants of slaves. The task force believes reparations would be the best way to make amends for generations of harm and discrimination experienced by the state's black residents. Well, here to set us straight on this controversial issue is David Anderson. Pastor Anderson is author of the book, Gracism, the Art of Inclusion. He's also founder of Gracism Global, an organization that bridges cultural, faith, race, and wealth divides in American society. David, it's always a pleasure to have you with us. So reparations, good idea, bad idea, will they help heal old wounds between races in American society? Well, first of all, thanks for having me on the show, Gary. And, you know, reparations has been a controversial issue since 1865 with uh, the order, the special order number 15 of 40 acres and a mule. You may remember that where freed slaves were promised 40 acres to get integrated into society as free blacks. Uh, but then after Abraham Lincoln, uh, President Andrew Johnson reversed the order. So they never got the land or the capital, which is what the mules, mule was, uh, to own their own businesses or to build their own lives. So it's been controversial since that very first uh, time of blacks being freed. And we're continuing uh, to talk about it. Is it a good idea? I think it's a great idea to figure out what's the best way to repair the wounds and to bring healing uh, to a historical past that has been very detrimental to the black family. Well, let's get into this a little bit, David, if you don't mind, because it seems that throwing money at a problem is always the American way, isn't it? Uh, yeah, but I know yeah. it's going to take a little more than that. I know Christians uh, who believe that you don't just remedy an injustice by creating another one. And some Americans, like Native Americans, Japanese Americans, even some Chinese Americans, others say they believe they too are owed reparations as well. So where does it end? Do we just keep going down this road? How do we overcome this without creating more discrimination? What's the biblical way? Well, thanks for asking the question. You know, we see a biblical example in Luke 19 with Jesus and Zacchaeus. He ripped people off, and by the time his heart was changed, he was paying people back four times what he ripped them off at. I do think that that's a great principle for us to think about. One, it has to change at the heart level. And then two, it has to change at the hand level. And so what am I supposed to do if if something is stolen from me? I'm supposed to... I'm supposed to return it, you know? And so how do we how do we say our hearts are so broken by what has taken place uh, in our history for the Black family that we can think through strategically with the right heart 
uh, how to repair it and not throw money at it. Because when you throw money at something, you're right. Nobody gets to spend anything that's thrown. You got to catch it. It's thrown because you really don't want to give it to somebody. So I think the best way to think about it is how do we invest? How do we return? And how do we repair uh, so that all of us as Americans can try to find a place of of racial healing and, and truly making a difference and, and investment is That's a good what, idea that so also david we saw the shutdown of the subway system in new york city this week in protests of the death of jordan neely now witnesses say he threatened subway passengers that's when a 24 year old marine stepped in put him in a chokehold to prevent him from harming people neely later died and those protesters insist the marine's response was racially motivated what do you think well the reports are not that he threatened, but that people felt threatened because he was uh, yelling and screaming, but he wasn't uh, attacking individuals. Of course, I wasn't there. Now, there's something in me as a veteran that would always want to step in and be protective of the innocent. And so if I saw someone like him make a move towards someone else, I might step in. Uh, but my goal would not be to kill the person. I don't think that was the goal of this Marine veteran. But when you choke out somebody, uh, unfortunately, there are all kinds of implications that come with that. And there has to become accountability for that behavior. You can't just kill someone and then walk away and it's okay. Now, when you have a white man and a black man that just takes it to another level, right? Because of the racial issues within America. Do I think it was racially motivated? I don't think it was racially motivated, but I do think something is important for my white brothers and sisters to understand. Whenever you're interacting with uh, the black community, given how hostile uh, the relations between whites and blacks are, you really need to think twice about the certain actions that you take if it's in conflict whether it's a policeman or whether it's uh, somebody walking their dog and you call the police on a black man, really think about the interactions with black people because black lives do matter. And unfortunately, um, people who look like me, if we're not careful, can end up dead, even though we're unarmed or because we make a mistake. Yeah, a lot of mistakes out there and not a lot of love. What role should pastors and other Christians then play Uh, and helping to build bridges in our society in situations like these and that we've talked about in others. It's so important for us to have the love of Christ, like you mentioned. And as pastors, you know, I think that we not only have to pray for people, but shepherd people as they have to deal with some of these social issues. And that's exactly what Paul did in 1 Corinthians 12. While he was talking about the diversity within the body, he actually mentioned race and culture and class and social status. When you go to 1 Corinthians 12, verse 13, he says, whether Jews or Greek, that's race and culture. Whether slaves are free, that's class and social status. We're all given one spirit to drink. We're all baptized by one spirit. So within the body of Christ, not only do we come together, but we need the Holy Spirit to really help us figure out, God, what is the wisest way to show your love in this situation? Okay, the book is Gracism, the Art of Inclusion. And I guess, David, it's just been updated. Is that correct? 
The newly updated and expanded edition comes out this week. I hope you'll go to gracismglobal.com and get the book right away. Okay, Pastor David Anderson, always a pleasure talking with you, and thank you for providing those insights. We appreciate it. God bless you, Gary. The surge is coming. U.S. Homeland Security Secretary Alejandro Mayorkas says the United States is prepared to handle the thousands of daily migrants expected to flood the U.S. southern border as Title 42 restrictions come to an end. Title 42 allowed the U.S. government to send migrants back across the border because of the COVID-19 pandemic. Mayorkas told reporters Homeland Security has been preparing for this day since September 2021. And again, he insisted the border is closed. The border is not open, it has not been open, and it will not be open subsequent to May 11th. And the smugglers who exploit vulnerable migrants are spreading misinformation. Mayorkas said migrants should not believe the smugglers. But many Americans believe Mayorkas is spreading misinformation when he insists the border is not open. They see videos posted to social media like this of masses of migrants camped out on the streets of El Paso and other Texas cities. No, folks, this is not a third world slum or a refugee camp. This is the United States of America. Seeing is believing. So do you believe the border is closed? Texas border towns are overwhelmed. They don't have the capacity or humanitarian infrastructure in place to handle this crisis. But blue state sanctuary city mayors tell Governor Abbott to stop sending migrants. The message is, you keep the migrants there, not in my neighborhood. That means sanctuary cities are just a political gimmick. The mayors of Chicago, New York, and Washington, D.C. don't practice what they preach. And Governor Abbott is sending 10,000 National Guardsmen. President Biden is sending 1,500 troops to the border to help with the expected migrant surge. But Abbott says the federal troops will do only paperwork when they are urgently needed to secure the border. Since Joe Biden took office, monthly migrant encounters have averaged more than 200,000 per month. With the end of Title 42, that number could easily double. So although Mayorkas says the federal government is prepared for this new wave of migrants, no wonder few people believe the federal government will stop the flow anytime soon. Well, that's it today from the Global Lane. Be sure to follow us on the CBN News and our B Channel social media and our broadcast affiliates. And until next time, be blessed.